0: 150 years ago, the business corporation was a relatively insignificant institution. Today, it is all-pervasive. Like the church, the monarchy, and the Communist Party In other times and places, the corporation is today's dominant institution. This documentary examines the nature, evolution, impacts, and possible futures of the modern business corporation. I still happen to think the United States is the greatest place in the world to invest. We have some shake-ups that are going on because of a few bad apples. Some people call me a bad apple. Well, I may be bruised, but I still taste sweet. Some people call me a bad apple, but I may be the sweetest apple on the tree. These are not just a bunch of bad apples. This is just a few bad apples. It's not just a few bad apples. We've got to get rid of the bad apples. You can start with Tyco. Bad
1: apples. We know all about WorldCom.
0: Bad apples.
1: Xerox Corporation. Bad apples. Arthur Anderson. Bad apples. Enron, obviously. Bad apples. Kmart Corporation.
0: The fruit cart is getting uh, a little more full. I don't think it's just a few apples, unfortunately. I think this is the worst crisis of confidence in uh, business. (laughs) What's wrong with this picture? Can't we pick a better metaphor to describe the dominant institution of our time? Through the voices of CEOs, whistleblowers, brokers, gurus and spies, insiders and outsiders, we present the corporation as a paradox, an institution that creates great wealth but causes enormous and often hidden harms.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a video episode of Life and Life Only and uh, kind of a partial
1: swapcast with Luke's English podcast. And we've got the man himself, Luke Thompson. How are you? I'm fine. I've been in training for this episode because I feel like this could take a long time and there's so much to cover. And so I feel like I've needed to. I've been running up and down stairs, drinking plenty of water, trying to get a good night's sleep just to be ready for this.
2: Yeah, corporate water you've been drinking, haven't you?
1: Yeah, that's right. I well, do. I've gone straight I've got a bottle of... Look at that. Just terrible. How can, I, how can I talk about this film? How can I criticise the corporate world when I'm, I'm an agent of the corporate world by drinking Volvic? We're appetising it in the first 45 seconds. That's yeah, impressive. Oh, fallen into the trap. It's so
2: easy. Never mind, we've got two hours to uh, present the other side, haven't we? Indeed. Anyway, it's, it's a kind of a swap car, so welcome to your own show as well. Oh, it's nice to be welcome to my own show. That's. <laughs> I did that joke last year, but I think I think once a year is acceptable. Anyway, listen, uh, we've got so much to cover. Let's get in there. Let's do it. Okay. So, on the docket today, I'm just going to do a brief introduction. This is the Corporation, the Pathological Pursuit of Profit and Power from 2003 This is a Canadian film written by a law professor called Joel Bakan, I think that's how you pronounce it, directed by Mark Akbar and Jennifer Abbott, based on the book of the same name, which I haven't read, but I feel like I'm going to get to at some point. The thing about this film, it's about two and a half hours, so we we have to factor
1: in the fact that it is edited a particular way. And just for maybe my viewers (laughs) viewers. as well, or listeners, Mm. the point of the documentary is that it's an expose criticising the system or the entity of the corporation the sort of big multinational companies and the way that they work their history and the way that they impact the world and what the possible future might be of corporations it's sort of like a critique of capitalism but it focuses specifically on the structure of the corporation
2: I don't know how many hours of footage they shot it's something crazy like 2030 something like that in preparation for this I was going to look at all the extras and everything, which I have looked at in past years, but there was just so much. It was just too intimidating to begin with. This documentary is very good. I mean, I love it. It was life-changing, really. But at the same time, we can't pretend that it's totally objective. You know, it's giving you one side. Their argument would probably be that when you're going up against the corporation, the corporation's influence on our lives is so massive that when you present the other side, you know, you, you don't need to present their side as well. You know, we're sort
1: of fighting against this incredible propaganda and influence, you know. Yeah. In terms of having a balanced argument, the corporation's side is already like fully weighed down. And so this is just a small thing that might even redress the balance by a little millimetre or something. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose they're justified in presenting it in the way that they do. But it is quite interesting that they do have the voices of people from the corporate world in there. They gave them screen time. And it's it's very interesting the way it's been put together because those people don't come out of it well at all. It's quite funny in places. I mean, overall, I find the documentary to be incredibly powerful, but also it's quite upsetting in some places and uh, depressing and terrifying as well, to be fair. And what do you think? What do you feel when you, when you watch it?
2: I felt, yeah, it is kind of depressing, but it's good that they put some humour in there. And they did try and end it on a positive note with some positive results and what we could do, you know. And the idea that it's a, a bit like a scary boss. A scary boss gets a lot of their power from the power that we give them. And so when you try and talk on the, on a equal level to a scary boss, you might find they're not as scary. So I think it's... The point with a corporation is they get their power from the fact that we essentially prop them up. And a lot of the time we're not... We don't always have a choice to do that. You know, it's not always easy to reject corporate stuff, but they are getting their power from us. And it's one of those things where if we turned on them, we might find they don't have, or they might find they don't have as much power as we think. So probably like you're a bit armor plated at this point. We've probably seen so many of these dark documentaries. You know, I could kind of look at it and think, well, I've seen darker stuff than this and try and find the inspiring side of it. And also, I think I think I feel better when I feel like I know a bit more about the world, even if it's dark. I'm just that kind of person. If there's a few truths there to be garnered, even if they're not going to make me feel better about the world, I feel better. I Do you ever get that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a the initial feeling of like when you're just looking at the dark things, like you know, particularly moments where you see the treatment of animals. Oh, I hate it uh, with the hormones that are given to cows. You feel bad yourself because you feel like you're part of it, too, because you're a consumer of milk. And the feeling that you have in those situations is not just, oh, these bastards. But you also feel like kind of guilty. There's that underlying sense of guilt where you feel like I'm part of this, too. Yeah, and like, you know, you think, oh, God, wait a minute. The trousers I'm wearing, I bought these from Uniqlo. And I wonder about the conditions. I don't know the conditions of the factories, but, you know, you just think, oh, what about my converse trainers you know and just you realize that it's all around you and you're just part of it and also the the moments when the they talk about children and and the way that corporations target children you just feel so awful the idea that these hugely powerful organizations are going for your kids and it's just very upsetting to imagine that so basically i guess the point i was making there is that it's quite an upsetting film but it's also good because you sort of think well everyone needs to know this i'm I'm glad that this documentary is out there because people need to know about all these sorts of things
2: this one doesn't use too many documentary techniques uh, which is good. The documentary doesn't make these people out to be evil. It doesn't use like certain music, but they do seem to come from this other world almost. <laughs> I don't mean that too too lofty a way, but this corporate don't mean the world. No, no, but this corporate world <laughs> where they're probably it's so well oiled. Their sort of patter and everything, and, and the use of names as well is going to come to that later. But initiative and you know it all sounds so nice, doesn't it? You yeah, know, the
1: part- corporate world that they exist in that context is a context in which all of the negative things are all brushed under the carpet and put away from view. They're being positive and dynamic and, you know, raising money for their shareholders and thinking about the dividends and all this sort of thing. Lots of positive language and positive imagery. and Everything's all these clean surfaces and stuff. And then you take those. the, The funny thing the documentary does is it takes those people out of that context and puts them into the Real context of like well this is what is happening to the environment this is what is happening to these people who are being essentially exploited and you know look at all of the effects the secondary effects and the nasty things that are happening it reveals it for what it is which is kind of uh, quite venal and ruthless and kind of peels back their corporate curtain to reveal the ugliness and they don't realize that, I suppose. There are lots of interviews talking heads where they're talking to the camera, and I guess they don't realize that you've seen the image of, of something horrible, and then them talking, because in their minds they're still in this nice shiny corporate world where there are no nasty things in close proximity.
2: Have you ever talked about, on your podcast, have we ever talked about psychopaths and sociopaths?
1: No, I haven't, but we should probably talk about that, because that's kind of the key concept of, of the film, isn't it? Psychopaths, anyway. But you, there's a distinction between the two.
2: I've never been totally clear on the distinction, but uh, if we take psychopaths, because that's, that's what the corporation is basically diagnosed as, we'll get to that in two seconds. Essentially, they don't have the empathy And I'm afraid Hollywood has kind of given the idea that a psychopath is most likely to kill somebody, you know, like be an axe murderer. But in fact, they're not. They fit very well into big business and big politics and stuff because they just have that ruthlessness and they don't have that empathy. They've done studies on people, you know, and what they do is they give footage of, let's say, like a slaughterhouse or people being killed. The pulse rate will not change. Yeah, There'll be no changes in... It's like they can just see right through it as if it's not there. I won't go on this tangent, but occasionally you meet people, because they say one in every hundred person is a psychopath, which is very scary, and one in every 25 is a sociopath. Not sure if those numbers are, you know. But I have met people, and that's what I'm going to say. I've met people, and you can just see in their eyes there's, there's a coldness. But they're not going to kill anyone. They're just going to fit very well into and do very well in uh, certain industries.
1: Yeah, they'll just do what they need to do for their own self-advancement without really feeling bad about things which is quite frightening indeed definitely should we talk about the concept of the documentary and the way it diagnosed so the idea of the legal person absolutely and, and, and that sort of thing that's a very interesting angle that they've chosen
2: yeah i've just got a just a couple of quotes i get to do my michaela j michael impression this lovely voiceover In the last 150 years, the corporation has risen to become society's dominant institution and all pervasive. That was kind of a paraphrase. I just wanted to make one very quick reference to uh, Ronald Reagan, because the more I think about this, the Reagan-Thatcher era has really defined what we are getting now. And basically Reagan's campaign slogan was government is the problem. They did a very clever thing because people always moan about the government. Okay, we moan about them now, I'm sure. What they did was to present the solution that we should deregulate everything and give businesses power. And what you were saying a minute ago about the corporate, it's the monster it's funny that some of the corporate heads liken it to an eagle and then other ones people against it liken it to godzilla but it's this monster that you can't reason with yeah some- the
1: eagle thing I, I found quite funny as well because there's one guy i can't remember who it is but he's going yeah the corporation is a the proud eagle uh, soaring through the sky and you think yeah but okay so but do you want that eagle in your house because yeah. if it will peck your eyes out and possibly eat your children if it gets the chance. Is that really what you want? That's the analogy you're going to make? Okay, if it's like an eagle, but proudly soaring.
2: I think someone makes a point that it's an eagle and not a vulture. But obviously, I would say it's more like a vulture, or, you know, Godzilla or something. But uh, So the the corporation is this monster that's actually run by human beings, but it's this other thing. So let's get to this uh, personhood. We need to talk about that. I'll be honest, I haven't really researched this. I'm taking their word for a little bit. The idea was that corporate lawyers, X number of years ago, when slaves were being freed, used the idea, it's the amendment, 14th Amendment, no state can deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. But what was amazing was that the corporate lawyers managed to manoeuvre this, so they gave the corporation the rights of a person. And here's a crazy stat. Between 1890 and 1910, there were 307 cases brought before the courts under the 14th Amendment, 288 of them were made by corporations and only 19 by african americans there's a quote here people were killed to get rights and by a stroke of the
1: pen they were given to corporations i don't quite understand how that happened how by giving human legal status to black slaves in america they also at the same time allowed inanimate concepts to become legal persons as well and to be protected Yeah. So as a result, corporations are in the eyes of the law. They are people. They can sue. They can be sued. They can own property. They can own other businesses. They can file for patents. And the people who run those companies have limited liability, which means that if, for example, that company is sued, that corporation is taken to to court for doing something illegal or wrong, it's the corporation that is liable the corporation's money that's paid, and the people who set it up aren't liable. Yes. So there's that lack of connection between the actions of the company and the people who are running it. And this structure, as argued by the documentary, defines so much of what happens to the point where the people running the... This is probably going to come up later in one of your other points, but the people who are running the company can feel like they are good, reasonable people trying to do their best, but within the structure... Within the directives of this machine, there's only so much they can do because ultimately every single thing this corporation does is to make profits. And even the CEO, who doesn't want the environment to be destroyed, his power is limited because it is in the programming, it's in the DNA of the corporation for it to, whatever, destroy the environment in order to make profit. And uh, it's managed to convince us all that uh, it's it's necessary and that we all need to live with it
2: yeah to give a short version to people who don't know essentially if you're a sole trader let's say you have got your own shop or you're in a partnership with one other person you're obviously liable you've got like a stake. you've got total skin in the game and if you do anything wrong you are liable but what the corporation does is it creates this distance which is more and more and more so if, if you work at the low level of a corporation You know, they probably take very good care of you, probably get very good health insurance, all that kind of thing. And your job is probably pretty secure because you are a tiny, tiny fish in a big pond. So you're not going to want to know, really. You're not going to want to know what the end result of what's happening. And the distance is so far and getting so far that you don't have to know. And um, they talk about externalities, which is another kind of nice euphemism, which is basically when the third party gets shafted as a result of a transaction that they weren't involved in. And another... While we were talking about analogies with eagles and monsters, I've got here the corporation is an externalising machine, just as a shark is a killing machine. And uh, although Jaws is one of my favourite films, it did present the idea that a shark goes after people in the sense that it, it's almost like it's got a mind, you know, like it's, oh, there's a human, I'm going to eat it. The reality is that a shark goes mostly by smell, and it's like you can't reason with a shark. You can't say, oh, oh Mr. Shark, you've just killed lots of people. I think the shark is a good comparison because you can't reason with it. That's the point. You know, it's out of control.
1: Yeah, they created the shark and then they let it go. And it's a synthetic thing created by people. Yeah. So they created this synthetic shark, but they forgot to finish the programming it swims really well it's really efficient it is what it is really really well oh yeah but look it's going to swim to the beach and just eat all the children there's like nothing we can do about it because its sense of smell is so good and what can we do
2: well as i said in jaws you know it's been doing the same thing for millions of years so a corporation presumably if nothing is done it, it would just carry on doing what it does you know until there's some sort of backlash yeah I'm going to fast forward a little bit here because what they do is they they make a diagnosis of the corporation as a psychopath and uh, they go through each section and then they go the end of each section. There's um, something from uh, the manual of mental disorders, but what we'll do instead, I'll fast forward and I'll just go through all of them. There's only six callous unconcern for the feelings of others incapacity to maintain enduring relationships reckless disregard for the safety of others deceitfulness repeated lying and conning others for profit incapacity to experience guilt and failure
1: to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors these are the criteria that define a psychopath psychopath, so after psychological testing if these criteria are met it's like rubber-stamped psychopath
2: the fifth one i think is the key one incapacity to experience guilt you are likely to use that to major advantage in life or in your career
1: if you're a psychopath
2: yeah so that was one of the big things of um when i first watched this which was soon after it came out i think came out 2003 was the thing about the corporation the distance and the lack of liability and then this thing about diagnosing it as something that has no empathy and no feelings right let's talk about sweatshops yeah, God, just, <laughs> just presenting that. Everyone's going, Hot oh, and uncomfortable,
1: God. aren't they? I know, yeah.
2: Like you were saying earlier, I mean, it's no joke to say that, you know, unfortunately we are all kind of culpable and liable. But I argue that it's very, very difficult not to be that nowadays. The, the way things are set up, the way that virtually everything you buy is from China. You know, I do genuinely have a conscience about this. I've decided that it's the best thing I can do is create podcasts like this and create discussions like this and not sit at home feeling guilty for every every way that I'm culpable, because I do do my yeah. best. I genuinely do my best to make choices which uh, don't perpetuate this. Anyway, there's a guy, again, unfortunately I don't have his name, but the guy who investigates um, sweatshops. So just to give a couple of examples, he shows us a T-shirt that retails for fourteen ninety nine as dollars and the women were paid $0.03. Cents. And then there's another one, $178, paid $0.74. Cents. And I put in my notes here, markup is a great example of how greed is so tempting. What is a reasonable markup? You know, someone who owns a business will say, you know, I've got overheads. And I get that. It can't be a one-to-one thing. You can't charge the same thing that it costs to produce because you've got to make a profit. But what is a reasonable markup? You know, 200%, 2,000%. I haven't uh, done the maths here, but I don't know what the markup of that, but that's in the thousands, really. It's incredible. So is there a limit to human greed? Is it just too tempting if you're a business owner and you know you can get away with it?
1: I wonder if it even fits into the same category as addictive compulsive behavior, where if you take an individual who has got into an addictive pattern of behaviour where they're addicted to substances or something. And, you know, you read about this in the rock and roll biographies and all the rest of it. They get to a point where they just are taking so much or drinking so much, and it, it's like oblivion levels. And the only thing that stops it is either their death or some huge intervention. But maybe it's a similar thing that essentially these, these people are completely addicted to the acquisition of wealth. I mean, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street... Jordan Belfort says that he wasn't addicted to the drugs or the women, it was the money that was the junk that they were addicted to and the acquisition of it, so much more than they could need and it just gets into really weird proportions. It's never enough. It's filling some sort of hole, some psychological hole. Maybe there isn't a a limit to it.
2: Yeah, there probably isn't, you're right. And I'm sure there are personality types. I'm sure Jordan Belfort is some sort of personality type and it, you know, it's it's probably that plus, you know, is that classic scene with uh, who is it, Matthew McConaughey, and he's for me that's a the, classic.
1: That th- the chest thumping scene, yeah, that classic yeah, movie yeah, yeah.
2: scene of like because Leonardo DiCaprio he says you want a drink and he says oh just some water and he looks at him like so presumably when you when you enter a corporation and you go some way up the ladder. There's so many rules and probably ruthlessness is one of them. And that if you're the guy with the conscience, you're the weirdo with the conscience almost. You know, if you're on Wall Street, Wall Street is a perfect example, even down to you know the cocaine aspect of it and the heavy drinking. It's just when you're in that culture, it's very, very difficult, I'm sure. Yeah, to be l- peer pressure. Of course.
1: You've got to be extraordinarily independently minded. And if you are, you're not going to fit in. They're going to so kick you, you out only- at some point. Yeah. yeah, you'll be kicked out either physically or just sort of culturally or mentally or whatever you just it's almost impossible to operate in that environment unless you become part of that environment you know in every way so yeah you know, it's weird the way that these sorts of cultures happen and maintain themselves
2: i was getting angry at certain points in this documentary and i kind of contained myself and i thought well i'll take it out on uh, when we do the podcast <laughs> i'm not gonna get angry now but i was getting extremely irritated and um The guy from, I think it's the Fraser Institute, the Market Solutions. You and I were talking about this and I was getting angry before we started the recording, wasn't I? Let me quote what he says. It's just just unbelievable. I'm paraphrasing it, but people in poor countries starving to death, they only have their low-cost labor to offer. And then he goes, they wave a flag saying, come and hire me. I'll work for 10 cents an hour because that will buy us the rice we need not to starve. Come and rescue us okay which is bad enough okay the idea that these people are waving a flag and saying yeah i want to work for 10 cents an hour yeah i really want to that's going to be great because all i want in life is enough rice so
1: i don't starve i don't deserve anything else all i need because i'm a simple poor person it's incredibly insulting to those people doesn't he also say the only thing of value that these people have is their cheap labor that they can offer yeah that's How insulting is that to these people, that literally that's the only value that they have to offer to the world, that they're so pathetic and weak and uh, unimportant and pointless that the only reason, the only thing they have of value is is that. Yes. So he he sees them only in terms of their labour. Yeah, they're a human resource. who's basically desperate enough to work for an insultingly low amount of money. So human life is only valuable in the sense that it can provide cheap labor yeah
2: but Luke it gets better when wages get too high and you've used up all the desperate people and they're all plump and healthy and wealthy so apparently they get fat as well on uh, 10 cents an hour and enough rice to avoid starving let's move on to the next desperate lot and raise and raise their level up oh what a hero you know takes the desperate people exploits them spits them out and then gets a load of other desperate people and raises their level Because all these people, they're waving a flag. They've gone down to eight cents an hour. And Mr. Fraser Institute swoops in like like an eagle, in fact. Or a vulture. Yeah, or a vulture, yeah. And I wanted to just say a quick thing about company names. These companies have the power to create names that sound lovely. So Nike, for example, is the Greek goddess of victory. The company that's named after the Brazilian rainforest, who I'm not going to mention because I refuse to mention them on any of my podcasts. They've chosen a name... They've got the power to choose that name. And if you think, you know, Jeff Bezos is a hero, then research what goes on in some of his factories. There's that clip from the Davos Institute. I think they're talking about that company where the employees wear diapers because they're not allowed, they shit into diapers because they're not allowed toilet breaks. And I mean, okay, there is an argument, let's be fair. There is an argument for saying that the CEO, and then one of the CEOs makes an argument, he doesn't have power over everything. There is an element that's out of his control. But just to say to the viewer, before you hold up jeff bezos is this really cool guy who's gone to space and everything think about you know do some research you know it's it's horrendous and then we we find out time is factored in these factories into ten thousandths of a second they've got 6.6 minutes to make a shirt so not only are they 10 cents an hour but it they probably got someone up their ass the whole time
1: just- of course because there's there are so many people who are in such levels of poverty if that person doesn't make the shirts at the required speed they can be easily replaced by someone else from the village or from the next town. Yeah, they just have suppose, to look outside you know. and see who else is waving a flag saying, rescue me, don't they? Yeah. On the point of Jeff Bezos going into space, never has space travel been less cool mm-hmm. than it is now. Yeah. I don't know, just sending their big phallic rockets up into the sky. Phallic rockets, and yeah. Just like, Good point. Like uh, One of them looks extremely phallic. It's like, really? This is like the most extreme middle-aged guy with a Ferrari-type behaviour I've ever seen you're not content with a supercar and a big house you've got to also fire a huge metal cock into the air <laughs> as well for the world to see
2: i don't know anything about the guy i know a little bit about, i mean I, I know elon musk has got a just a car crash of a personal life i know that much i mean i i don't know much about jeff bezos but i'm saying the public seem to automatically put them up as a hero and it is because of in a subconscious way, it's because of how much money they got, because there's so much propaganda pumped to us to aspire to be more beautiful or richer than we are. It's a bit complicated, but in a roundabout way, that's what it is. But just don't hail these people as heroes because
1: they're not heroes. I'm sorry. I suppose there's the sense that there's the connection to scientific progress and the idea that they are the Star Trek idealism of like, you know, we're going to explore new opportunities and, you know, take the human race to new levels of achievement. You know, fair enough. I'm not totally against it, but...
2: They're not all bad. I'm saying, but just saying it's clear-cut that they're all heroes and we also think they're really cool. That's what I'm going against.
1: It's a marketing thing. It's just, it's blatantly obvious. You know, they're just trying to establish a cool image that we then want to be associated with. Let's just put these two things together and then our product will be associated with that thing and then that'll just raise the value of it. It's associations...
2: some are subtle, some are not subtle, but if you put them all together, that's what I got from this. You know, if we talk about corporations of propaganda and advertising, it's billions of dollars, and it's just pummeling us with obvious signalling, but also very, very subtle signalling. And I think my listeners, and I'm sure yours as well, they realise a lot of this already, but I bet there's loads of the public that just simply have no idea about any of this. And that's scary in itself. I don't know the numbers, obviously.
1: I mean, you get to the point where every single image and every single thing that we observe and consume has been designed to manipulate us. There's a, there's a big mental health problem in the world where there's lots of depression and, and the rest of it. It's because our feelings are constantly being squeezed and pushed this way and that way. Companies have worked out that the best way to advertise their product is to advertise a feeling. So every advert that we see, which is on TV and everything that you see when you're out and about in the street, all the images, it's designed to make you feel a certain way. And also they often will trade on feelings of inadequacy. You know, you, they make you feel inadequate while at the same time proposing the solution to it, which is, you know, this new skin cream, a new miracle snake oil or whatever whatever it is. Yeah.
2: It's one of those things that you can only spend so much time looking at this, because it does get too depressing. But once you understand that it's there, I don't think you need to keep investigating it. You know what I mean? Once you know that when you go out of your house, if you walked for an hour, there'd probably be 200 bits of advertising and propaganda that you may not even have any idea of.
1: Now that I'm aware of that sort of thing, I take a weird enjoyment in making fun of adverts that I see. Right, yeah. My brother and I wanted to do a podcast a while ago called Ad Nauseam. I think probably the name's already been taken. yeah where we just basically make fun of adverts that we've seen. It's so easy to do. You just take a picture or some advert and you can just pick it apart. Great idea, though. If I put out a podcast next week called Ad Nauseam, I'm really sorry, (laughs) Luke.
2: Take it as a tribute, okay?
1: Okay. But also, I should say that here we are, some people might say moaning and uh, criticising. The tricky thing is that what is the alternative? We're criticising and stuff, but what are we suggesting? And... People who don't agree with us, that don't agree with any kind of criticism of the world as it is, will immediately start jumping to conclusions and saying that we, well, or what, you're suggesting this instead? You're suggesting that instead? The sort of danger of even talking about it, is that you you get a lot of pushback and people assume that you're proposing other systems which have been proven to be damaging and terrible as well. So it's, it's a tricky thing to talk about. Well, that's
2: interesting you say that because what I would call it is an allergic reaction. You know, you get this with conspiracies as well. When you even just consider that something might have involved some uh, conspiracy. You know, I used to work with activists in London. We'd have documentary screenings, and people would just get so angry. But you could feel like it was more of an allergic thing. And again, that that's what propaganda does. It creates, it puts so many messages into you that when you get something against it, you have an allergic reaction. That's what it is. The pushback you're talking about, I think it's that. Because we are, we are all very conditioned. And it's not because we're stupid. It's just because we're bombarded by it. And I I don't want to depress anyone. I'm glad that we're at least keeping this conversation light to some extent. But uh, I want people to watch this documentary and hopefully listen to it and be inspired to just be more aware. You know, you don't have to go out on the street and become a a protester, but just share it with
1: people, you know, because it's amazing how word of mouth spreads, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I guess one thing that people say is stuff like, oh, yeah, but corporations have brought us these wonderful things. Like, for example, the iPhone is amazing. I mean, there's no question. It's an incredible thing. But then you kind of think, but on balance, how much of that amazingness do I need versus how much people at the other end of the process, the conditions that they're living in? Small gains here can be large losses in other places i don't know i'm not suggesting a whole new system or i think it's just a just a certain extra level of responsibility or maybe a bit more care or awareness
2: again if i want to give a message to our viewers or listeners make those little changes that are within your control you know try and do those little things because the little things do add up and if you spread awareness with other people it's incredible how quickly things can change because they can change uh, that would be my conclusion but i may as well just say it now you know can we just go forward a little bit? One of the guys on that was one of the talking heads was Robert Hare, consultant to the FBI on psychopaths, confirms that the corporation fits the definition perfectly. And then uh, our lovely Michaela, I won't do the impression again, but she said the dominant institution of our time has been created in the image of a psychopath, which is quite a big thing. Milton Friedman says, can a building have moral opinions and social responsibilities? Is what we're talking about, you know, can you reason with a shark? How about marketing to kids?
1: Let's talk about that yeah Um. wow i've got a daughter she's four and a half years old and it's pretty hard work when she nags me Mm. i feel like this is more the case in america in the united states where on television they do have a a lot of advertising that's aimed at kids
2: yeah there's a woman um we were talking off mic about uh, trying to remember all these names Uh, there's obviously some famous names in this of the talking heads but that woman with the nag factor she's sort of unfortunate she's one of those people if you remember. What's her name? Martina Hingis, the tennis player. They have this sort of permy smile. I'm sure there's a technical name where they kind of look like they're smiling all the time. But when this woman was going, uh, oh, yeah, the nag factor has helped uh, 30% more.
1: And I just, oh, God, it's so annoying. Her name is Lucy Hughes. She was the vice president of Initiative Media, the world's largest media buying corporation. And she created the Nag Factor study to help corporations get kids to nag their parents to buy things. And she talks about it and she's like got this smile and she sort of like brushes it off like it's not that bad. I'm paraphrasing, but she says, yeah, so we basically manipulate the very vulnerable developing minds of your children for our corporate uh, profit-making interests. She says, yeah, but you know what? It's fine because it made our people lots of money. So yeah, it's fine. I'm one of those annoying people who doesn't have a TV.
2: I don't either, actually. Uh, You don't
1: either. So actually, we don't spend a lot of time in front of the telly and I don't really let, you know, my daughter's not sitting there just being babysat by the TV. I've tried to find other better things for her to do. But it's very hard, though, because if you have got to, if you've got to cook dinner, I do need to give her something to do. So I let her watch some things sometimes on a on a tablet and play with a sort of educational game playing app thing. But in America, I think it's much more normal to just have the TV on. And they have adverts for toys and things and
2: food as well. Don't forget. And food food as well.
1: They are really, really insidiously created with lots of psychological research into not just how to get the kids to want the products, but how to get the kids to nag the parents to buy the products. And that just seems so manipulative and so mean to target these kids whose brains are still developing this. They're so malleable. So yeah, that's just really, really makes me angry and sad that
2: and again we're not saying it's just the existence of marketing to kids because kids are going to want things and marketing per se is not bad i mean if you take depends what you talk about advertising or marketing i guess that's another argument but making people aware of things is not it's not a bad thing but it's the level of sophistication and the quote here marketers play on kids developmental vulnerabilities with incredibly sophisticated technology I don't know how this has happened exactly, but our society's become one where if you are aware, you're almost like a weirdo or some sort of pariah. <laughs> well, truth became a dirty word as well because it was connected with 9-11 truth. But I would argue that there was a thing called the truth movement and none of us really like that term. I prefer alternative media through podcasting and stuff. But there was a point where truth became truther which became this, this, you know, weirdo just watching YouTube videos about conspiracies, which is not what it's about. It's about trying to be aware and trying to get through the limitations of mainstream media output, which is the dominant output. Just as the corporation is dominant, mainstream media output is dominant as well.
1: The thing is that we've all seen certain things online which are lumped in with that. And those are the things that have soured the whole situation. Like, you know, the flat earth conspiracy where they find a very old map, like some antiquated map which has presented the earth in a slightly different shape. And they say, look, this old map shows that the earth is flat. It's like, what, just because it's old doesn't mean it's better as evidence. You know, so those sorts of things have essentially... You know, people see that sort of thing, and it really makes them angry. uh, Not necessarily because it's challenging the status quo, but because it's just such bad content. I don't know if I should use the phrase "the bad apple," because that's used in this documentary by the corporate. Right at the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They kind of try and dismiss the bad actions of corporations by saying, "Oh, it's just a few bad apples." But anyway, you were making a very profound. I can't
2: remember it's so profound I can't remember what it was <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would make one point yeah if you ever watch any YouTube videos of people laughing about conspiracy theories they will always target as you were saying the ridiculous ones like flat earth and that they'll never talk about and in, in England they'll never talk about say Dr. David Kelly you know the weapons inspector you know or other ones where you know there was a guy called Gary Webb who investigated the CIA trafficking drugs and apparently shot himself twice in the head not sure that how, how that happens there's so many, but they will always target the ridiculous ones. Anyway, I mean, that's something we've covered on Life and Life, <laughs> only to death. Let's talk about um, Carlton Brown, who's the commodities trader, talking about nine eleven. Now, my issue with Carlton was, why does he have to have this big smile on his face when he's talking about that? My issue was not that a commodities trader, when they hear about nine eleven, their mind naturally runs to the price of gold. I might seem weird for accepting that, but if you've chosen to be in the commodities trade, and it's one of those fast moving things, yeah, any market trading, it's everything's happening by the second. And I have a journalist friend, I'm not going to name him, but he told me that because I was discussing something about, um, you know, when when someone gets shot or something, all the journalists crowd round them or they'll surround the, f- the home of the family. And as soon as they come out of the house, they say, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And you think, how can you be that callous? But my friend, my journalist friend said, if you choose to be a journalist, then you're almost obliged to do your job when it happens. So I don't have so much of an issue with Carlton saying that if you choose to be a commodities trader, then when nine eleven happens, your mind is going to automatically run to what's happening to the price of gold. What do you think about that? Feel free to disagree. Give me your thoughts.
1: Well, yeah, I guess if you are a commodities trader, and that's what you do all day, that's what you're thinking about all the time. Because it's your job. You know, I've got got to be aware of the price of commodities all the time. And you know that when 9-11 happens, that's probably going to be what he thinks of. I mean, I wouldn't be proud to say it if I was him. Yeah, uh, that's maybe the issue you have with the little smile or smirk smi- that he's got on well, his face. It's a big
2: smile, and I, I like to think it's an ironic. I mean, it probably is an ironic
1: smile, but I just think it was a bit unnecessary. You know? Yeah, why is he smiling? I guess he's there's a certain exhilaration with being so brutally honest yeah maybe uh, could be, about yeah. it that he's just like you know i'm just a commodities trader and you know this is what we do and so maybe the smile was an acknowledgement of the irony of of it that he saw a terrible thing and he thought of the price of gold but what's interesting is reading the study guides for the corporation documentary the way that they filmed it do you know about that did you see that in the PDF? i saw
2: it but can you explain it
1: these days it's very common in video format to see someone looking at the camera and talking directly to the camera like this in conversation because we get Zoom videos which now are posted on online a bit like this one. But I think that as viewers we're getting used to watching people on Zoom and we know that when they're looking off to the side and the other person is looking off in a different direction and not looking at us and no one seems to be looking at each other we somehow we understand that this is these are the conventions of a video call now. But anyway In the documentary, it was quite new at the time that the people being interviewed were just looking straight at the camera, but talking in a very natural conversational way. So the way that they did this is that they did it so that the interviewees were looking directly into the lens, but they were seeing the face of their interviewer. So what they did is they propped up a a piece of glass at an angle between the camera and the interviewee. And so the glass reflected the image of the interviewer. But then through that glass, the interviewee was being filmed. So it means that what happened is that the interviewee, you see their facial reactions as if they're talking to a person. And the interviewer was sort of used, apparently, used facial expressions and sort of nodding and sort of other ways to elicit or maybe encourage the interviewee to have some level of emotion on their face. So it's quite a a direct way of getting the interviewees to express themselves and to show their emotions on their faces when they were talking to the camera. Normally, when you talk to a camera, it's hard to... You don't naturally have those emotional reactions on your face because you don't you're not seeing a, a person reacting to you so they they had a little trick to make sure that people could address the camera directly while also seeing the face of their interview and i think it affected the footage that they got
2: yeah i think all the talking heads they're very engaging even if you don't like the people or what they're saying a lot of the time it's just a very very well presented documentary i think i don't know if this is my note or i was quoting from it decades of propaganda employing psychologists something that i've said on the podcast. The scary thing about it is that if you test people, if you get psychologists to test people's reactions, including children, this is what they do. I found out when they bring kids into market clothes, they take the opportunity to do a load of tests on them as well. They test them on colors and, they, and they, they've got them even sort of electrically wired up so they know how their body, I mean, it's just, it's just horrendous. But the scary thing is that that means that a person who you've never met, like a psychologist or a marketer, actually knows us better than we know ourselves. And because I I would say our culture treats people who overanalyze things as kind of weird or, you know, it's another one of these things where there's so many Hollywood films or TV series where the person who's very thoughtful or analyzes stuff is either subtly or overtly seen as a weirdo. And that's what I mean in our culture and TV and everything. There's so many messages which are saying don't overanalyze. Rich people are heroes. There's all these millions of messages every day. That's why I could say with some confidence that they probably know us better than we know ourselves. But again, if the message is, study that, folks, you know, study that so you can be more immune to it. And, you know, I said I'm not a parent, but you are. And, um, you know, especially for parents, you know, it's very, very important. Don't deprive your kids, but, you know, within reason.
1: I hope my daughter grows up with the critical faculties where she's able to realise that she's being you know, potentially manipulated. It's hard to say that, though, to a four and a half year course, old. How yeah. <laughs> you
2: know. about this, Luke? Wouldn't you be the proudest father in the world if your daughter said to you, Daddy, is it true that uh, we are bombarded by hundreds of bits of over and more subtle propaganda to mould us into being certain citizens that don't question things too much? Can you imagine how proud you'd be? <laughs> I could see, you know, your face would just be, oh, my daughter.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I'd say, my God, have you been listening to Life and Life Only by Anthony Ratuno by any chance? Maybe I left my, my podcast out running in the bedroom for <laughs> my mistake. She f- fell asleep and your entire back catalogue was playing all night. And then she woke up and saying, Daddy, yeah, it's apparently funny. we're all just being bred in pods to feed the corporate. <laughs> Daddy, was the Vietnam War really
2: just imperialist bullshit? <laughs> That's episode, uh, I can't remember the number of the episode douglas valentine he wrote a, amazing, a couple of amazing books one called the phoenix program and one called the cia is organized crime that was a good interview so we get stuff like uh, celebration florida is a planned town that's basically owned by disney or, or sponsored by disney we get the two university students this is interesting two university students corporate sponsored very interesting one of them appears in the new corporation the sequel and he's kind of seen the light and he talks about how he was manipulated in the first one.
1: This is extraordinary. It's a sort, I feel like it's the only thing that could happen in America. But who knows these days the way things are going. But uh, yeah, there's uh, two university students who are like proudly on daytime TV in America. And it's basically we decided to be walking billboards for companies to sponsor us to pay for our university education. And they said that on the TV show. And the audience goes, Way! Of course, yeah. they all laugh and cheer, like, yay! Probably because it says on the screen in front of the audience, laugh and, you know, cheer now. I think it was like almost a story that was a self-perpetuating story in the sense that the kids said, all right, we will wear your corporate logos on our clothes if you pay us for it. And that got into the news. And the fact that it was in the news and they were on TV meant that the corporation's did then give them money. The fact that they were doing it became a story which allowed the sponsorship to actually happen.
2: That was my understanding, that was that they went on TV and said nice things about the sponsor. But then I was wondering, how did they get on TV? So it's obviously been
1: organised, so it becomes a story, as you said, that goes on TV. I think that's how it worked. Maybe someone from the company said, let's go to the university campus and find the two coolest, most popular kids... And then we'll set up this situation where we'll create a story and we'll give this opportunity to the news networks. They'll say, hey, we've got a great story for you. These two handsome looking uh, college kids have decided to open themselves up for sponsorship. They're going to be walking billboards for the companies. This is quite fun, isn't it? And they're, you know, they're good looking kids and you know, they've got nice smiles. And the, the news station or the TV station is like, oh, OK, I think we can run this story So, bingo, the plan works. And, of course, because they're on the TV, the corporation's getting all of their promotional, you know, their advertising in there. You know, we've got a possible story for you, and it sort of works for everyone. All The lads are getting their money. The TV station get their story. And the corporation, you know, get their name out there. So it sort of seems to work for everyone. But in the sequel, the 2020 sequel, one of those students is actually in it is he
2: yeah i don't remember much about it because i've only seen the sequel once but the idea was that he realized he talks about his experience in the first one he realizes yeah you know i I wasn't doing the right thing and he was quite affected by the documentary as a whole not just his bit i actually watched this film and the sequel back to back one sunday and when i finally decided not to slip my wrists i reflected on it and it, it was uh yeah it was a pretty heavy journey but uh i will watch the second one perhaps in the future we could review that as well but i think we'll leave it a bit of time to psychologically recover from this basically because i need time to I, I need to seriously distance myself
1: from all this uh, after we finish this conversation you know yeah maybe just going for a nice walk in the park <laughs> yeah. listening to sergeant pepper or something or just a bit of Aphex Twin or Brian Eno ambient music, and I was having a nice cup of tea in a dark room, and having a lie down maybe necessary. What about the Pfizer episode, which I found interesting? So without going into the whole pharmaceuticals thing, mm. so the idea that there is a town or a street that Pfizer had... I don't quite know the arrangement, really. I do not understand what were, that guy was doing, to be perfectly honest. I think it's this. So Pfizer had essentially paid for an area of is it flushing it was in new york as an area near new york it's just i remember that because whenever i see the word flushing or the place flushing i think of the ruttles and bill murray you know the scene is here and flushing the whole world's eyes are on flushing
2: i think of tennis because that's where they have the u.s open isn't it so that's new flushing, york, meadows. flushing meadows yeah yeah
1: anyway so i think it's quite a poor part of new york so pfizer had invested lots of money in a couple of streets there and they'd redone it, you know, the streets looked all nice and clean. And there was a guy for Pfizer who was there in the in the streets with a big smile on his face, you know, that kind of uh, everything's positive and look at the great things that Pfizer have done here. And fair enough, like the street did look nice. And But he was just really too chirpy and too positive and I'm tom from pfizer every time he went pfizer. i'm tom from pfizer and we're here in the streets of uh, flushing and then he kind of grabs a couple of people he's like so uh are you, you happy with uh, what pfizer have done here and they're like oh yeah i guess it's kind of good and he's like great you see everyone's really happy what are they gonna say they're not gonna go no i hate it are they on camera yeah he's almost like forcing them to well he's not forcing them he's just doing that thing that street salesmen do which is where they're like super positive and you've got no choice but to go along with it
2: and they're just being nice you know they're just being average people they're being nice yeah sorry
1: they're just being nice so it's not exactly the most reliable focus group feedback of how pfizer have been involved in the town although it did look nice i'm sure they'd improved it in many ways but it was just funny that he was trying to put a big positive sheen on things so obviously. And then he goes down into the subway and he says, look, you know, uh, we paid for these new security doors so people can't go through the doors, jump through the doors anymore. Fine. And then he's saying the station is much safer now. And he's talking about these information booths where you can press a button on the wall And you can talk into a a microphone thing. And he's basically saying that we've put these things in so that if anyone is getting attacked on the station platform, they can call and they can get help. And he even says, you know, you'll be put through to, you know, someone in an office somewhere and that person will call the station security. He'll come down and he presses the button and he says, hi, this is, you know, Tom Jackson. And he gets no reply. Yeah. <laughs> and and you can see it's like, yeah, just a second his face drops and maybe the beads of sweat start to appear on his forehead. And he's like, I'm sure he'll uh, he'll reply to us in a minute anyway. Uh, and then he keeps going and, and no reply. And so he goes, uh, I think maybe we'll try this one over here. And they keep the cameras going as he tries to get a response from the security guy and fails again. And I was just thinking, you know, if you've been stabbed on the platform and (laughs) how many times do you have to press that button before you get any help? But yeah, it's a tricky one, that, because I'm sure that they did improve the station and the street, but it was just the manner with which Tom or whatever his name was, was trying to really upsell everything. It was real neat and awesome. Just seemed so fake.
2: Yeah, and if I could just make this point viewers listeners no hate please Pfizer corporate as we know now legally mandated to put money above everything else Pfizer also sponsors the news there's a few people have put YouTube videos and stuff the news sponsored by Pfizer really yes that's all I'm going to say nothing else
0: Brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the Royal Wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports Update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the Press. Data download brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by
1: Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer.
2: CNN Tonight.
0: Brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett Out Front. Brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. Good Morning America is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News
2: Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. But yeah, Tom and his smile. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, who the hell would be taken in by that? But I'm sure he's got lots of other sales patter that would work on all of us. I don't know.
1: Either you go along with it because you're nice, or to not go along with it and to say, oh, come on, Tom. I'm not buying it, son. Don't, don't. But I'm not buying this, Tom. Come on. Like, really? You're going to come across as very sort of mean. and That's it. You, know, you don't want to be mean to Tom. No one wants to be mean to anyone.
2: And also, I think people are very entranced by cameras as well. And I mean, I think I've had this before. I I was on camera just very briefly years and years ago when I lived in London. They were just asking for opinions on things. And the first time when you realize you're on camera, it does throw you. So the idea that someone who's never been on camera is going to say something really negative to this corporate CEO or whatever he is, you know, it's unlikely, isn't it? So it's sort of playing on this thing of just people being nice. What do you think of this? Uh, oh, it's great. Yeah in reality they probably just don't care it's just like, oh, I'll just say it's nice and then this guy's gonna leave me alone probably it's that element as well yeah you know oh do you think yeah. do you think Jeff Bezos is great do you think he's great don't you think of all those packages that arrive and all the convenience and someone goes um, well yeah it's alright yeah well you just basically just leave me alone now it's that kind of thing you know
1: it's quite tricky to get an objective comment from someone in the street though because I, I did a few years ago when I first started doing my podcast which is Just in case any of your listeners don't know, it's a podcast for learners of English, adult learners of English around the world. And I did these videos where I went into the centre of London and I just wanted to get people in the street and just get samples of spoken English from them. What I wanted was a range of different comments about what it's like to live in London. And I did also things about what do you think of the royal family? And I really did not want to make them say a certain thing. You know, I didn't want to say, so how great is it to live in? You know, tell, me, tell us how great London is or how much you love the royal family. So I had to be quite careful. I was like, so what are the good and bad things about living in London? You don't want to influence them too much. So it's quite difficult to kind of ask a question without imposing some kind of intrinsic bias in the question. Definitely, yeah.
2: yeah. There's about three more things I'd like to cover which are quite important. So let's talk about the bovine milk scandal. I'll just set it up so we've got Steve Wilson and Jane Acra. They went to work for they said Fox TV, which presumably is Fox News, I don't know. They were told you can do what you want, ask tough questions. They immediately realized that they'd put together a cheesy ad called The Investigators, and I put in my notes just already looks like a TV show and it's really cheesy. So they're probably thinking, "Oh, blimey." Anyway, basically, the crux of it, they found most of the milk in Florida and even around the country was adulterated with the effects of bovine growth hormone. The company convinced the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that it was safe, and the government rubber-stamped it. Obviously, it's not all that simple, but it went through certain channels. But what was interesting was, was all the tactics they used to try and either kill the story or dilute it to the point where there was almost nothing there, you know, using all this euphemistic language. There's a telling quote from, I think it's the general manager of Fox, we just paid $3 billion for these TV stations.
1: The news is what we say it is. And that's a direct quote. I mean, that's pretty telling. Go yeah, on. there's some quite shady moments. So, Steve was talking about how he was approached by who was it? Was it an, an executive from Fox or was it from the corporate sponsor?
2: I can't remember. They say a name, don't they? It's like Dave or something. They, that was quite funny when they said, So, a guy comes up to us. I think his name's Dave. But they're definitely the general manager asked them to make changes and. Essentially, the lawyers get involved, don't they? And it sort of circles back, we mentioned right at the beginning about the lawyers.
1: Yeah, I think the corporate sponsor, I think this is right. The corporate sponsor is the one who actually approaches them and tries to persuade them to drop the story. And, you know, it comes in stages. It starts with pressure. And then when they say, uh, no, you know, we're still going to run the story. Then they go away and they come back with like a friendly offer, That's it. which then yeah. turns into an outright threat. It's just like these different stages and then ultimately you get down to the brass tacks of it, which is like, yeah, we control the news. You will say what we tell you to say. Yeah, it's
2: amazing, isn't it? Another absolutely seminal book that I would really encourage anyone to read is John Perkins' Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He talks about how um, US corporations go into third world countries and basically encourage the leader to essentially sell out their country. So the leader is taken care of marcos in the philippines is a good example to get infrastructure contracts a lot of the time for work that's never actually going to be done but it's just to do with plundering third world countries and john perkins said yeah they send in this charming guy with a smile then they send in what they call the jackals who are you know obviously the heavies and then eventually in the end they even declare war that's that's the final thing but but it's like this thing about these approaches and it's it's almost like a good cop bad cop but the good cop doesn't appear at the same time the good cop comes in gets rejected then the bad cop
1: arrives and sometimes it's the same person who just takes a different approach <laughs> yeah. and someone who's quite initially quite friendly can turn quite menacing and i suppose for a journalist in that situation you might suddenly be concerned for your life those Plus thoughts your might family's go-
2: life of course yeah
1: those thoughts might flash through your mind where you start to think wait a minute I'm really dangerous to these people now because I've got this story that's suddenly very scary in a kind of a movie, you know, like Michael Clayton or something like that.
2: Yeah, or sort of the smiling assassin almost who comes in, he's got a gun in his pocket and a big smile, that kind of thing. It, It would throw you off, yeah. I'll just give a very, very potted version of what happened. So they were offered hush money, the rest of the year's salary, not to talk about the story or anything that happened. Steve and Jane wouldn't sign the letter. So the story got rewritten 83 times. 83 times over a period, I think it was about eight months. They filed a whistleblower claim that took two to three years to get processed. They won. Fox appealed with five major news corporations supporting them. And essentially that amounts to most of the news, most of the suppliers of the news. And the upshot was... The sort of secret bit of it is that falsifying news isn't actually against the law. Because they use all this euphemistic language, they take out the word cancer, for example, and it gets diluted to the fact, it's almost like if you imagine like a drink of something, and you add so much water that in the end you can't taste the
1: original drink. It's like that. Those news networks, a lot of them were news corporation networks, right? That's it, And, and, you know, again, this is an American story, although I'm, I'm sure it doesn't only happen in America, but it is very much an American thing where those news networks are just totally corporate-controlled, like Fox. But I don't know what the relationship is with the other networks. You know, News Corporation, Rupert Murdoch and that whole massive company, it's not set up for objective news reporting. You know, they're the ones who own The Sun and various other outlets, Sky even. The commercialization of, of news is not good for the truth, Yes, ultimately.
2: And corporate news, I mean, that's very interesting. We're talking about corporation that's been diagnosed to be this thing. And the news providers, again, I'm not saying it's all bullshit. I'm not saying nothing is
1: true. Just saying it's there to make money. I'm sorry. Maybe now is the time to talk about some of the solutions again. I mean, we've kind of talked about the more positive side of disseminating the information and trying not to normalise all these sorts of things. But also, it's about the rule of law, isn't it? And the reason that the corporation is able to operate in this way is because of its legal structure and its legal parameters. And so, surely, the way to try and check these things is for the rule of law to maintain strength. I mean, that, that Fox Story example it went to the supreme court there were certain laws that they were able to invoke in order to defend themselves the journalists you know so thank goodness for the rule of law in that regard and the fact that there are ways to use law to defend the truth and so on and you know i just hope that the rule of law is upheld and is protected and that's a worrying thing when something like the supreme court if that gets Compromised, and so on you know you know what i mean we need lawyers you know we need um people to try to put legal structures in place you know going back to the robocop analogy which is that as we know robocop basically has these directives the crucial thing is one of his directives is removed which is i think serve the public and because that directive is removed he can't kill the ceo the evil bad guy, he can't kill him because he works for him. Oh, that's Cause, it, Because yeah. beep, 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 you're not allowed. It's in your programming. So they and then, fire
2: him so then he can shoot him.
1: He says, you know, yeah. Dick, I've got news for you. You're fired. And yeah, Robocop's like, like, you know, Thank thanks you. or something. And he shoots him. But the point I'm making is that maybe, I don't know. I mean, who am I to know? I mean, I'm not a, a lawyer or, a, or anything, but maybe we need to just try and make sure that There are regulations and uh, rules and laws that try and protect the world.
2: Well, let's make the point that I'm in England, you're in France, we've been talking about the USA, this is obviously Canadian made. None of those countries would ever want to identify themselves as some sort of dictatorship or autocratic. You could argue that perhaps we don't have as many rights as we think we have, but there's always going to be something in place legally, because... What Britain, France, USA, the, the last thing they'd ever want to be known as or identified is as as countries where people don't have rights. You know, we, we're we just bombarded with the idea that we've got lots of rights. And obviously, in comparison to other places, we do.
1: But These days, the United Kingdom, I mean, the, the, our current government seem to be quite happy to strip away people's rights and proudly do it. I mean, human rights are on the menu. It's like, right, which ones do we want to strike off today? That seems to be what a lot of our current government is about and they dress it up as if they are doing it for what for patriotic reasons let's remove everyone's workers rights why because we love britain like that just makes no sense anyway now i'm
2: just trying to make the point that in uh, what presents itself as a democracy they always are going to have to have checks and balances i think you're absolutely right though subtly you know the, what's happening in, in england yeah it's gradually being worn away but they will be voted out eventually because that's just how things go
1: it's a dangerous thing when you criticise the system and you say that this is all messed up. The danger is that you that you also cause people to just reject the system completely and then then it just topples over into something much worse so we've got to maintain that positivity and sort of say yeah we do still have power as you said we still have the the power to to make a difference and so yeah i i hope people still vote and that they don't completely abandon the political system as it is now because that could cause a vacuum and, and that vacuum could be filled by something potentially worse
2: we can vote with our dollar yes But at least having a government there, even if they do seem to just ride roughshod, certainly at the moment, in theory at least, uh, we we do have some control, whereas a a sort of corporate behemoth, you know, a Godzilla figure, or a shark, whatever you want to call it, we have less. Can we bring this to a conclusion? The the only two things I wanted a name check, basically, because they were quite interesting parts, was the thing about, um, it was in Bolivia, wasn't it? Let me get this right. Cochabamba, third biggest city, and... um, the Bechtel Corporation of San Francisco got control, and they privatized the water, and they're actually stopping poor people catching rainwater. Which there's a clip of Michael Moore in his documentary saying, "When is it enough? Now, when is it enough control?" And they talk about air, water—you know, this idea of there's no commons anymore. Yeah. And um, what happened to those protesters in Bolivia? I mean, the brain injuries—they were talking about them losing limbs. I don't—I don't think exactly one of them how got shot, and killed. One of them
1: got shot and killed, but they talk about losing arms and legs. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I suppose when you get the police who are potentially... You know, sometimes the police can be quite heavy-handed. And when it's like, okay, go and stop these protesters, you know, and they'll just use it as an excuse to go and beat people up and maybe do, you know, horrible things to them and stuff. So,
2: When they want to make an example of someone, when they want to send a message, that's when they will give the harshest punishment. Right. And then the other bit was uh, Smedley Butler. I don't know if you've ever read War is a racket, I did a podcast about it. It's a very short book. It's worth your time reading it because it was written by one of the most decorated marines ever. So it's not a conspiracy theorist looking on YouTube. This is a guy in um I think it was written in either the 20s or the 30s, but they talk about the business plot. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to quote Smedley Darlington Butler. Here we go. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. I won't read all of it, just a couple of examples. I helped make Mexico and especially Tampico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues. And then it goes on, I won't go through all of it, but... um, talking about war is a racket and a racket for your um any non-native speakers in your audience is a dishonest business isn't it it's a
1: corrupt business it's what organized criminals do yeah where they extort money and they control things by force and threat of physical violence or the delivery of physical violence war is a racket
2: yeah war is a racket yeah a very seminal book and um yeah like i say in the life and life only archive you'll find a did a podcast about it i read it and it was kind of interjecting This is not in the documentary, but have you seen the clip of Rutger Bregman at Davos? Have you seen that guy? He's a Dutch historian. No. Uh, We'll put it in the show notes. And in fact, on the audio version, maybe I'll put a clip in now.
0: This is my first time at Davos. And I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighter's conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. He got invited to Davos, and he, he just cut through the
1: crap in such a fantastic way. Like the way the Dutch do, often.
2: You know, then cut to the reaction, but people smile... Maybe ironically, maybe not. Maybe some of the people at Davos do realize that a lot of it's bullshit and it's just a kind of circle jerk for rich people. And, yeah, they get all the best chefs flown in and obviously they burn all kinds of carbon flying in on private jets. I mean, it's just a joke. But that clip for the audio version will tell you. And that's when, in fact, there's a woman talking about um, the workers in the US factory having to wear diapers, which I already mentioned earlier.
0: I actually came, because I do believe we have an issue here, but I have to say, honestly, this is a very one-sided panel. You know, frankly, what people really want, what really want is a dignity of a job. I'd like for the panel to talk about beyond taxes, which every one of you have talked about. The only thing you've talked about in this whole panel on inequality, what can we really do to solve, help solve inequality over time beyond taxes? Let me tell you something. We're talking about jobs, but the quality of those jobs with poultry workers in the richest country in the world, the United States. Dolores, one woman we work with there, told us that she and her co-workers have to wear diapers to work because they are not allowed toilet breaks. This is in the richest country in the world. So don't tell me about low levels of unemployment. You are counting the wrong things. You're not counting dignity of people. You're counting exploited people.
2: There were some uh, shots of protesters and I just wanted to there were a couple of signs I liked. One of them said, bow your heads. The corporations will now lead us in prayer. So relating them to sort of gods. Uh, another one was, I am a trade barrier, which is uh, relating to free trade agreements. Again, you know, look up free trade, you know, free for who. And then another person has a barcode over their mouth. If you remember that, that's, a, that's yeah. become quite a well-known thing. And then we get a lady called Vandana Shiva. I had an Indian friend actually when I and lived in Italy. And she said, Vandana Shiva is a bit of a legend in India. kind of a very strong woman and she was talking about how um there were these salt laws in india when the when the british were in in control and gandhi is a famous shot video that gandhi goes to the beach and just pours a load of salt out or something and says you know this comes from god or this is a natural thing because they were putting taxes on it you know yeah things like that there's even a quote something about never underestimate the power of the people i don't know if i ever told you this but when i watch documentaries like this part of me just does say because I don't have kids just saying I just need to become an activist you know yeah but I was talking I can't remember who I was talking to last night or whenever it was my life just uh, podcasting meetup groups teaching life coaching it all just melds into one I've completely forgotten what I've said to who but I was saying that uh, I've actually reasoned over a number of years that the best thing I can do is put out podcasts like life and life only and just try and plant some seeds in my teaching and my life coaching and my meetup group and everything I don't know why yeah. I was even mentioning that.
1: I agree. I think, it's, I think it's a good thing that we're talking about it.
2: Yeah. There's so much more, but I think we'll more or less leave it there. Do you want to give it like a closing statement? What have you learned and what could people do maybe?
1: I think that the documentary is definitely worth a watch. It kind of, it's an eye-opening stuff. It can be hard to, to keep your eyes open during some of it. I don't mean it makes you fall asleep. I just mean it's hard not to cover your eyes at some of the moments in it. But I think that overall, it's important to see it. And it's a very, very well made documentary. And I think that when things are well made, and when things are clearly intelligent, serious pieces of work, there's a lot of value to seeing them. So I'd recommend the documentary. And I think it's also important for people to keep these things in mind. It might seem a bit hard, but I I think it's still valuable. And I haven't seen the, the new one, but I will watch it. And then I'll have a nice lie down and a cup of tea.
2: Yeah. Well, um, the other thing I said earlier about, yeah, spreading awareness, planting seeds, just talking to people. It doesn't cost you anything to talk to people about this. And I saw an amazing stat. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have it with me, but it's something like if seven people each told seven people something... The same bit of information that would be forty nine. If those forty nine each told seven people, and within I think it's like ten transactions, that message has spread to millions. The whole population of America, because it was an American who was talking, which is three hundred million. That's all it takes. I mean, I, I was on a podcast in like two thousand and fourteen. My friend Julian, uh, the Mime Renewed, and we would talk about changing the discourse about how there's a tendency when people are conversing that it's almost almost as a comfort thing. You talk about very superficial things. But unfortunately, sometimes that just continues all the time. And you you find like so many of your conversations superficial. So without getting heavy, without sort of freaking people out, I've got this platform of teaching and life coaching and podcasting. I'm very lucky and you've got the platform as well. But just in daily life, you know, just plant little seeds with people, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's amazing how quickly stuff spreads. And like I say, I won't spoil it for people who are going to watch the documentary but the last sort of 10 20 minutes they do try and end on a hopeful note and they're saying that this corporate behemoth it's not as strong as it thinks it is you know it's like the scary boss i was saying earlier yes you know it's not as powerful as
1: the power that we give it the last couple of paragraphs on this worksheet maybe i can just read those things out yeah go for it might be quite a good ending to this so here are some statements by the filmmakers about what they wanted to achieve with the film My overriding objective in making the corporation was to challenge conventional wisdom about the role of the corporation in society, to make the commonplace seem strange, to alienate viewers from the normalcy of the dominant culture, allowing them to gain a critical distance on the conventions and the corporate culture that envelop us all. One of my goals was for viewers to ask questions about this strange thing, the corporation, and I hope that people walk away empowered and motivated to do something. And the final thing is this. A great social critic, Karl Marx, said that understanding the world is the first step towards changing it. We've taken an institution that's been reified and what we've done in this project is to say that it's not the case. It's an institution that we've created and then I to add to that it's an if we've created it then I guess we can change it. There you go.
2: Very good. Nice. Something we didn't do at the beginning. Could you just tell us about your podcast? I should have done it at the beginning but we
1: could do it at the end as well. Just uh, go and sure. go for it. So I actually do a podcast for learners of English around the world. It's for adults. So I'm an English language teacher. So I teach English to adults, and my podcast is basically a chance. The idea is that I want to let my listeners listen to English more, listen to it more regularly, and listen to it for longer periods of time. The idea is that it helps them with their English, ultimately, rather than just listening to the usual sorts of scripted dialogues that you get in the English course books, I always wanted to present a sort of more natural form of English, and the, the, the way I try to make it work is to just talk about Anything, I'm up for talking about anything, and I want to make it interesting to listen to, and I want it to be engaging and funny. That's the idea. And so I'll talk about all sorts of things. I also do stand up comedy, and so I try to put the spirit of stand up into what I do as well. There you go.
2: Yeah, I feel like in your podcast, you do what I try and do in my English classes, and maybe you do the same, which is to teach English, but then hopefully teach other things at the same time or, or engage in discussions for your audience So my podcast is life and life only i mean i've got three podcasts and i'll just name them because i feel like they're all they feel weirdly melded into one because there's a lot of crossover mm. so obviously my most high profile one is glass onion on john lennon which uh, as it stands i think is the only john lennon specialist podcast i'm very happy about that also life and life only which is the one that we're on right now kind of a a mixture of uh, inner and outer truth so the inner is more self-development obviously I cooperate life coaching in there as well and then the outer is uh, stuff like this really this kind of goes with the outer truth side of it the corporation and alternative media that kind of thing and then I've got one called film Gold, which is just films and you were on fairly recently
1: we did uh, Monty Python the Holy Grail
2: so thank just thanks for doing this and I think it's been I think we've added a bit of humour in there.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Anthony. Thanks for inviting me on. And thanks for considering me as a guest on Life and Life Only. And uh, it's been really great to talk about such big things. I will, as I said, talk about everything. And often I will talk about... I'll just be silly and talk about... I don't know what I've been talking about recently, but I'll just make up a load of nonsense about nothing in particular, you know, just for fun. But today was like, you know, serious stuff. But that's good, too. It's nice to have a chance to talk in really meaningful terms. So thanks for the invitation.
2: You're very welcome, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that's it. Thanks very much, and thanks to everyone for watching. Oh, God, Alan Partridge again. Watching slash listening. (laughs) So to all the viewers slash listeners, you know what I mean. All right, that's it, guys. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye.